there were always whispers, and Richard Gere himself would say, I am not hireable by major studios because of my criticism of the Chinese regime. And there was always some skepticism that that was really the case. But it turns out it is true. Um, Casting associates told me, you don't touch Richard Gere because he's just, first of all, they're probably not going to show any movie that stars him. And again, it all comes back to risk. Why take that risk? If you really need Richard Gere, let's have a conversation. But if you can call Jeremy Irons, let's call Jeremy Irons. Hollywood in China. What a hot mess. To discuss, the Wall Street Journal's Eric Schwartzel is with us today to talk about his new book, The Red Carpet. Co-hosting with me is Irina Liu of the Rodium Group. Eric is also the partner of ESPN basketball reporter Kevin Arnowitz. I'm curious, Eric, what is the worst movie that you made Kevin watch? You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I remember whenever I sold the book, Kevin uh, very enthusiastically, he's a, he's a very supportive partner, and I remember him very enthusiastically saying, let's go see Chinese movies together. Um, you know, the, to the Chinese blockbusters that come to the U.S. Um, curiously, when the time came, I was buying a ticket for myself. Um, so, so I have to say, I don't, I'm trying to remember if there was a single movie I had to watch for the, oh, okay, you know what, I'm not being entirely fair. I will say um, during COVID, uh, when, when we were in the pandemic, we had this really extensive movie club and we watched uh, quite a few um, films like like uh, Raise the Red Lantern and and films of that sort of that that era in Chinese filmmaking. So I'd say I'd say some of those were probably the, the those were obviously the best films we watched. But when it came to like the schlock I had to sit through for this book, it was um, it was me and my notebook by myself. All right, so I want to tell this story through movie titles. Let's start the clock in the 1990s with Seven Years in Tibet. How did this movie happen? So Seven Years in Tibet uh, was a movie that was greenlit in in the mid-90s. If you'll remember, uh, a time when the Dalai Lama was very hot. Um, Buddhism was very hot in Hollywood at the time. Uh Richard Gere was a very big proponent of the Dalai Lama and his teaching. Sharon Stone called herself a disciple. Uh, ABC put Dharma and Greg on uh, its primetime lineup. And Seven Years in Tibet, this uh, book that had been written by, uh, by a gentleman who had been living with the Dalai Lama when the Dalai Lama was a young man and was his tutor, was optioned by a director named Jean-Jacques Anoud who wanted to make a movie about this blonde Aryan-looking man who um, started to teach the young Dalai Lama the ways of the world. Brad Pitt was cast in the film. It was going to be one of his sort of big breakout signature drama roles, and Sony put the movie into production. Almost immediately after the film was put into production, Chinese authorities made it very clear that they were not happy that this movie was going to be made at all. Not just because it was going to valorize someone they consider a state enemy, but it was also going to recount a lot of ugly Chinese history that they would rather not see on screen. And it became this really early cautionary tale for Hollywood that making a movie that would cross Chinese authorities, even if that movie was never going to be shown in China to begin with, could be a problem because Sony was threatened with being completely expelled from the country. And I, when I say Sony, I don't mean the studio, that their, that their movies wouldn't be shown there anymore. I mean, the entire electronics parent company behind that studio was threatened 
with the production of this film. Yeah, it it's really interesting because this was at the t- at a time in the 90s where it wasn't crossing Hollywood filmmakers' minds. It was just, oh yeah, Buddhism is hot. Like, let's find this like spiritual book by this like former Nazi who like showed up in Tibet. I guess it's a cool story. Um, and you know, this sort of not being super, super stressed out about the Chinese, uh, you know, the Chinese government response continues all the way up to 2006, 2008, where you have Red Dawn getting remade. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Hollywood really wasn't in China until 1994, and it didn't have any box office really to show for itself until let's say 2010, 2011, there would be some outliers that did particularly well. Titanic was one, Avatar was another. But you're absolutely right. No one was making movies in Hollywood thinking, oh, this will make us a lot of money in China because there wasn't a lot of money to be made in China. And that's one of the key distinctions here. And I think it's one reason why Seven Years in Tibet is so instructive of an an example, because here was an example of a movie that was never going to be shown in Chinese theaters nonetheless threatening a whole business because it was being made anywhere in the world. And that's a, that's a dynamic that, that exists today. But you, you reference this, this remake of Red Dawn, this classic of uh, 1980s uh, Cold War cinema about a group of American teenagers who fend off uh, Soviet invaders of their hometown. It was going to be remade in 2009 by MGM, At the time, they didn't think that a Russian invasion of the U.S. would make sense for a remake. Um, And they knew that, you know, some kind of Al-Qaeda type character wouldn't make any sense either. There was really only one option for a remake of Red Dawn that would come out around 2010 or 2011, and that was China. And so they had scripts written of a new Red Dawn that would be about a Chinese invasion of the U.S., They shot the film, they completed the film, and then Chinese authorities, again, made it very clear they did not like the fact that this movie had been made at all. Um, They started putting reports in state media saying that tempers were going to flare if the film came out, and MGM started to panic and try to figure out what they were going to do because this was going to threaten their livelihood in what was now clearly going to be the number one box office in the world within the next decade or so. And so they did something extraordinary. They shipped the movie to a visual effects firm in Burbank that specialized in what they called hidden effects. So this is not exactly like doing the big like car crashes or anything. These are the folks who go in and erase the boom mics from floating in the scene they're the ones who will take out the underwear line so that an actress looks like she's fully naked. Uh, one guy told me that his job was once um, erasing the back acne of an action star when he took his shirt off. I mean, I think these are actually really quite important jobs. I mean, think about how awful the movies would be if we didn't have these folks. My question is, like, how do you end up there and not, like, you know, animating a, a monster or something? Like, is this, like, actually the secret, secretly the thing that you get paid better for because no one wants to do it? There's not, like, a million interns knocking on the door trying to, you know, animate the next Iron Man or whatever? That's a great question. I don't know how the pay compared. I do know that one of the guys I spoke to was a former animator. Um, another one was a former limo driver. So I think it was a bit of a, a sort of happenstance how a lot of these folks 
ended up there. But then one day they come into work and they're being thrust into this international incident because they are hired to effectively scrub China from this completed film. So they're sent like 110 minutes of footage about a Chinese invasion of the U.S. and set and told, you need to make this North Korean. So every Chinese flag was turned into a North Korean flag. Every line of dialogue referencing China became a line of dialogue referencing North Korea. And that is how the film was ultimately released. And what's fascinating is there's a couple things that are, are really telling about this. Is One is that no movie has been put into production since Red Dawn by a major studio that has cast China as the enemy. So the the effects of Red Dawn really spread through Hollywood quite quickly and, and, and quite effectively. The other thing that's interesting is that this was not a secret. At the time, it was reported that MGM was doing this. And when I went back to research that chapter of the book, I realized that no one was really that upset by it. And, and really the only people, the only criticism I could find of this decision was a militia group in Michigan who called the decision a cop-out and said that they were fans of the original film and that MGM were, you know, um, acquiescing to, to the Chinese authoritarian regime by, by making this decision. It, and I think it's a reflection of where the two countries were at that time, where making such a change in 2012 was not viewed as aiding and abetting a potential geopolitical rival. Yeah few observations on Red Dawn. I mean, uh, I, I, I opened our chit chat saying, oh, this is my break from thinking about from doing war podcasts. But in fact, the idea of the, you know, I mean, we're seeing Red Dawn 2022 right now in um, uh, in Ukraine with with the equivalent of of high school basketball teams, uh, you know, high, of high school football teams getting together and picking up arms and trying to kill and kill invaders. Um, thought number two um, no one's going to be super stressed about ru making Russia the enemy anymore now. I feel like we kind of have a pretty decent stand-in for the next few decades. I'm not so sure about that, actually. I um, think that long before this, years ago, I had a meeting with a producer who told me that Russia was avoided oftentimes because there were there were potential concerns about hacking or mm. um, like some kind of retribution. So I think you're right that creatively, it's certainly a safe choice. But I think there still might be some ancillary concerns about that. What's a safe choice then? Aliens. The safest choice is just to make them these sort of like stateless, these stateless enemies. That's what that's what a lot of these um, these like James Bond type films are doing is it's kind of a it's just a, what's what's the word? It's um sort of an anonymously like anonymously Eastern European stateless agent. Let's go back a second. Uh, the Titanic, apparently Jiang Zemin loved it. He did. How could you not? I mean, talk about, I mean, talk about <laughs> uh, just like the best possible export you could, you could have. The, 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 the Titanic uh, moment in China really was quite a watershed because it was, I think, now five years or so after American movies were being let into the country. So, and, and, and also by now, American movies are not making a lot of money in American dollars, but they're making a lot of money for Chinese theaters. They're essentially single-handedly saving Chinese theaters because they're selling so many tickets. And then Titanic comes. It's an absolute phenomenon. It makes more than $50 million in a market that I don't think anyone thought they could make more than 10 or $15 million in at, the, at that time. 
And and you're right, Zhang Jimin looks at it, watches it, and then encourages his fellow party members to go see it. And he tells them that it is actually a fascinating instruction manual on how to win hearts and minds and essentially a an, an enormous case study in soft power. There is also there are also references um in reports around that time of him sort of referencing the class politics of it and how that was aligned with CCP priorities as well. Obviously we all remember what happens when the the lifeboats have low capacity, the the rich the rich folks look awful um because they're taking the place of the um of the third class uh folks and he also um would cite the uh, musicians who famously played on the boat um as it sank because he said this was sort of an example of like doing your doing your duty for your fellow man even in the face of of catastrophe but you're right he said so I'm paraphrasing here but something along the lines of we shouldn't we should view this film as a reminder that we um can learn from others how to appeal to folks' emotions. Um, and also, as you write, that it, can, that it should remind officials that we are not the only ones who can persuade people, uh, which is a, a really interesting little twist, right? Because, like, from, uh, you know, I think that in the, in the era, right, we're post-Tiananmen, uh, just a few years out, and the idea that he's in the headspace of, Oh, we're really good at persuading. Like, like the idea that you can conceive of the CCP in the '90s as the only ones who are good at persuading is a really, really interesting little window into you know how full of themselves, how much, how much that era of leadership really, um, uh, really believed that the CCP was on the right track. And also, it's a great point, and it also helps me realize too. I think it speaks to just how shut off from that kind of Western influence much of China had been since the revolution um you know the the american movie titanic was not the first american movie to make america look good or to make american movie stars appealing um or the american blockbuster something everyone wanted to see but it was now that i think about it probably the first major example of that kind of global blockbuster after american movies started flowing into china at all they were not, you know, Chinese theaters were not showing Star Wars or Back to the Future in the 80s. I mean, those kinds of films, Dirty Dancing, like all of those movies came out at a time when Chinese citizens were largely shut off from all kinds of Western influence. So it, whenever he says that, it, that kind of uh, ego and, and confidence might be, also be a result of just not really knowing what the competition has been. Yeah, it's really interesting when you read histories of the Soviet Union that a lot of these countries first started getting their taste of American culture a decade and a half earlier. Uh, and during uh, during Perestroika in the 80s, you started to see, you know, Rambo uh, getting um, uh, uh, getting played. There's a fantastic uh, article I'll link in the show notes of this um, uh, Romanian dubber. Uh, who who basically dubbed every like did 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 all the voices and was this kind of like voice of the underground kind of sneaking in these VHS tapes that um, then, you know, apparently like inspired a nation to like think about individualism and, and, and what have you. But having the clock start, you know, a decade and a half later uh, is 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 really interesting in the Chinese context. No, ab absolutely. And and then 
What happens very quickly after Titanic, I'd say maybe about a decade later, is the American movies that were that that incredible cinematic influence start to be influenced by China almost immediately because the economic leverage becomes such that the American movies soon need China more than China needs them. So let's let's talk a little bit about how the Chinese government, you know, went from producing stuff like Farewell My Concubine towards um and you know going from that moment the kind of uncomfortable relationship that the state had to that to um you know when in the 90s and 2000s you started seeing more and more money being poured into this industry. Well, I think I mean the the era of Farewell My Concubine, I mean those movies were pretty much uh, shut off to Chinese audiences as well. I mean, those those were, you know, Farewell My Concubine, Race the Red Lantern, all those films of the fifth gen, what they're called, what they call the fifth generation of Chinese filmmakers, they were shown around the world and oftentimes won every film festival they were put in. But Chinese, most Chinese moviegoers were never going to see them because they were exploring all these themes that the government would have never sanctioned audiences there to see. Really, through through that era, the '80s and '90s, if you're going to to the to a Chinese movie theater and you're seeing a Chinese-made film, chances are you're seeing a pretty medicinal propaganda film. Um, that is where a lot of the the effort went, and it it stayed that way until probably around 2008, 2009, as familiarity with Hollywood films grew. China's film industry started to commercialize quite rapidly. And then all sorts of movies started flooding the the market. So they they made, uh, you know, buddy comedies and family dramas and science fiction films. And Chinese genres started to just really diversify beyond that propaganda output. And then something really fascinating happened, which was the Chinese propaganda films themselves became more commercial. And this is how we give rise to things like Wolf Warrior 2. All right, we'll get there. Yeah. Um, one, one, one second, Eric. So um, the idea of tech transfer, uh, which you ha- devote a whole chapter to, I mean, usually when we've done a lot of China Tech episodes about tech transfer, and it's usually about, you know, stealing plans to a semiconductor fab or like, you know, the new battery technology. Um, But in fact, you argue pretty convincingly that, um, you know, tech transfer is not just like the cool software uh, to 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 render out booms or booms or whatever. But it's also the sort of the decades of uh, learning and experimentation that you know, went on with stunt coordination and, um, you know, script writing. Uh, Wolf Warrior 2 is a fascinating example of that. You know, we have, what's his name? Uh, Har? Har? Sam Hargrove, who did like, you know, some of the most uh, impressive stunt scenes of the past uh, decade and a half or so um, being tapped by the Russo brothers who were initially called up to like, you know, consult Wu Jing on how to make this movie. uh, to 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 do the show, I had no idea that that movie had so much American um, uh, uh, American influence. I know I didn't either, and it was a question that I had when I started to write this book, which was, you're absolutely right. Like technology transfer is so easy to understand when we're talking about airplane blueprints, but what does it look like when we're talking about storytelling? And and it seemed to work in two ways. 
One was what I can what I what I think of as the more grounded elements of movie making. So the stunt choreography, the sound mixing, the costume design, the production design. So a lot of that was imported to China from uh you know, and Hollywood talent would go over and essentially just work on the films as they would any production. And I think those are uh, you know, kind of like those hidden effects we were talking about. Those are things that I think a lot of audiences, when it's done well, they don't perceive it. But when it's done poorly, you do perceive it. And so that really helped elevate Chinese films. And then the other was, as you said, this kind of this teaching and this transfer of how to appeal to folks emotionally and how to tell better stories in at, at a script level that that was also happening at the same time. Can you can you tell one of these anecdotes of the uh, of a Westerner kind of giving script notes to uh, to a Chinese uh, to a Chinese production? Oh, yeah. No, no. This, my favorite one is is a guy um, who I got to know rather well named Bruce Fierstein, who wrote uh, two James Bond films and then was hired by producers in China to go over. And I, he would he would do a lot of different things. He would consult on scripts. He would, you know, punch up scripts. And then he was also producing a film. He was producing this film um, where there was a scene where uh, a man who was playing an architect um, has this kind of flirtatious dalliance with a maid in in the scene. And the the actor, the Chinese actor playing the architect, got in quite a huff. And he said, well, you know, a man of my stature would never, you know, flirt with a maid like that. And And Bruce had to explain to him that the maid was not a maid. The maid was the surrogate to all the women in the audience who wanted to be catch the attention of this movie star. And that kind of audience surrogacy and the idea that these these movies function on a level beyond just reflecting reality, but there's also an aspirational element to it as well. Those are the kinds of elements that I think have been transferred over time, not just not just by exposure to effective Hollywood storytelling, but also through very literal, you know, student teacher lessons like that. I heard an anecdote, uh, Ying Mi the Jiao Luo, my favorite show of 2020. The scriptwriter went to Columbia and, uh, you know, got his old professor to, um, uh, to, to, to give him notes and edits on it. And you see all these little like Netflixy tricks in there of, uh, you know, having cliffhangers into the next episode and whatever, uh, which kind of struck me when I read it. But once I once I saw that, oh, this guy had spent some time in the States, it um uh, it makes a lot of it makes a it makes a lot of sense. Um, but the whole idea of like translating, you know, having these Westerners on the set with like translators or like or translating a script into English and then translating the notes back into Chinese. I mean, it just seems like a huge, huge production. I don't know. Oh yeah, no. I think I think I think sometimes it can be. I mean, I I would talk to a lot of uh, Westerners who would go over to work on these Chinese films, and they would always say like, there was always a moment where they just about lost it. Like they just they just about lost it. Whether it was just sort of the communication issues or the differences in in how work was done between the two the two filmmaking cultures. But, you know, I actually and I had this. I spent uh, several days on set with a director named Rennie Harlan, who is this. Um, 1980s. I mean, talk about like Red Dawn era. He he really became quite a well-known figure in the 1980s because of films like Cliffhanger and Die Hard 2. He made like big popcorn spectacle. And then his career took a nosedive and he really had trouble finding good work until he was hired to go to China and be a director there. 
and I was on the set of a film he um he was directing called Bodies at Rest. And the lead actor uh, was speaking Cantonese. The lead actress was speaking Mandarin. And Rennie spoke neither. And I would say to him, I said, well, how are you uh, directing <laughs> these scenes? I mean, the actors themselves were having trouble because they they were like delivering lines to one another in a different language and just counting on it to be dubbed later. And so um, I was like, Rennie, how, what are you even doing with this? And he said, well, I am... I am directing them on the universal language of emotions. So at this point in 2022, do you think China still needs Hollywood? Do you think the film industry, you know, still benefits from learning anything else from Hollywood? Because you devote quite a bit talking about Kung Fu Panda and Zootopia and how, you know, China really wanted an animation that stuck out and that talked about their heritage about it. And then we have like Nuja in 2019, which arguably is kind of like, the, their Kung Fu Panda. Uh, Ninja is, yeah, f- I mean, absolutely. Ninja is, I think, totally a product of the existential crisis that Chinese leaders went through in 2008 when Kung Fu Panda came out. And they realized that an American company in Los Angeles had taken their mascot, their heritage, and made a movie about it. I think, I think it's, uh, but the broader question about whether... China needs Hollywood anymore. I think certainly internally, it seems like no, because, you know, Nedja and other animated films are just making hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office quite easily. I think where they probably could still learn from Hollywood and it's going to be the hardest part of it is um, sort of gets back to the Titanic discussion, which is how then do you export that entertainment and how do you how do you translate it to audiences who aren't going to know who Neja is or who any of these these characters or mythologies come from? You know, that's that's the thing that I think that that's the technology that's still going to be hardest to transfer. Well, I was going to say the opposite of Kung Fu Panda is like you have the disaster of like Mulan, like from 2020, right? And you you know you write how like when Hollywood movies like try to cater so hard to this Chinese audience that they fail because no one mm. likes a clingy boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, why, why do you think this interna- like intentional catering fails so often? I think there's just been an incredible um, underestimating of the Chinese audience. And just frankly, uh, uh, I think Hollywood for a long time and even still today was on a bit of an ego trip thinking that um, by pandering to Chinese audiences that they would just sort of show up and beg for more um, and not see through so such transparent, you know, like as I said, frankly, pandering. Um, and and so whenever they were casting Chinese actors or actresses in these bit roles and then those those fans would show up and realize that they were just glorified cameos, you know, it doesn't take long to see what's going on and not to really trust any Hollywood treatment of a what they call a Chinese element. Um, now, I think in the case of Mulan, that's really fascinating because that's Hollywood trying to tell a Chinese story and failing miserably. And I think the the answer there is that by the time that new Mulan had come out, I mean, that was by, I think, maybe a year or two after um, Neja. It was, a, it was a year, it was four years or so after Wolf Warrior 2. I mean, there was, there were, 
already tons of Chinese action epics being made by Chinese filmmakers that you could go see. And so the, the, the comparison I always make is, would we expect American audiences to go see a Chinese version of Davy Crockett? Like, the, why, like why would you go see yeah. a Hollywood, a Western treatment? And, and, and then what was fascinating, too, with Mulan and with a lot of these examples, too, is there seems to be, in certain pockets of China, really great offense at anything then that Hollywood gets wrong um, in, in those portrayals. I mean, it seems like Chinese audiences have, have gotten a lot less forgiving of, of any, as I said, mistake or um, interpretation that they disagree with. So with Hollywood, like catering to this Chinese audience, they're also kind of catering to this larger Chinese diasporic audience too, right? And we have this surge in Asian American and like Chinese American representation in Hollywood movies. Do you think that's related at all? That's a good question. I mean, I think there are two different things. I think because um, oftentimes the, the pandering to Chinese audiences specifically usually involves hiring people who are famous in China. Um, and so that can be like casting Fan Bingbing or casting even like an actor like, uh, what's his name? Jason Statham, who is obviously not Chinese, but has like a big following there. And that gives him sort of an extra cachet when producers are deciding who to put in a movie. Um, the The representation of Asian Americans overall, though, feels to me more a sort of a call for an answer to those calls for better representation rather than a play for for China in in most cases I would say um and and because a lot of times those movies that that are being heralded for better Asian representation aren't necessarily working in China either so it feels like there's a little there's like two buckets there um to to some to some degree um, I also am curious to see, though, whether the casting and hiring based on appeal in China grows riskier in studio assessments because there have been so many high-profile examples of Chinese or Chinese-born talent running into issues. I'm thinking of, like, Chloe Zhao with... Um, mm. uh, who directed Nomadland and then was hired to direct this Marvel movie, The Eternals. As as you know, the comments she had made more almost a decade prior came back to haunt her about China. I wonder how many studios are saying to themselves, are there just now too many tripwires to risk it? That's a really interesting dynamic because, you know, it's not just Asian people who have Twitter feeds Right. I mean, like, you know, it can be it can be a Daryl Morey. It could be uh, anyone on these um, uh, anyone on these productions, uh, actor, producer, director or whatever. Um, if they had ever commented on anything like it's going to be found um, because this is this is now a game that people on the Chinese Internet have a ton of fun playing. Let me ask you something, because this is a question I've had that I suspect you would know the answer to better, which is that when when we see these reactions pop up and and these kind of like these uh onslaughts of of criticism whether it's about chloe Zhao or or daryl morey do we have a real sense of how organic that reaction is how much of it is a mix of 
organic anger and government amplification? Like, do do we have a sense of that? Um, it's a really hard question to answer. I think the the thing that's important to recognize is that the the sort of types of acceptable discourse um, that doesn't get censored in China is narrow, um, especially when talking about topics like this. So the voices saying, you know, screw you, Chloe Zhao, um, you're a, you know, you're a traitor to the Han people or whatever, are the ones that are not going to be taken down. Um, that said, I think we've seen on a number of occasions, you know, in the in the NBA stuff, in the um, uh, in some of these like crusades against uh more ethnic Chinese than uh, uh, than than white people, to be clear, um, that uh, you also see this get picked up by the uh, party, the the party youth league, and ultimately state media. And um, uh, you know, I think the foreign ministry started talking about uh, Daryl Morey at some point. So um, clearly, there are you know lots of parts of the uh, Chinese system which see value in in pushing this uh in pushing this narrative forward now going a few levels deeper into that is probably for a um for another episode but i think there's enough of uh kind of authentic mm-hmm. uh revulsion which is then sort of the the sort of voice that gets the most clicks and is right. not getting getting banned um which then allows it to seem um maybe bigger than it is but also you know when you live in a media echo chamber and this is the one thing you see over and over again um it um uh, it ends up sitting in i mean the craziest one i was listening to a chinese podcast the other day by these clearly like a movie review podcast by these clearly like very uh educated uh thoughtful like cultured people who've watched thousands of movies in their lives and are very nerdy um one of the folks uh, they were talking about dune and one of the guys went on this whole riff about how it was racist that the asian dude um was the traitor who stat who you know poisoned the king or whatever sorry Mm. for the spoilers it's been a year um and the other guy was like really Come on, man. Like, it's this is like a tiny minor plot point. He also kind of got upset that um, uh, Timothy Chamelay was speaking Chinese. They're like, what are they just catering to us because he's speaking Chinese? And the guy's like, no, it's just a plot point to like show how like worldly he is. And it's set in like the far future. Like, it's not really fair. But the fact that a guy who has as sort of like as much education and as much sophistication um, when it comes to looking at movies is like picking up on those plot points is upsetting. That is that is a fascinating window into sort of how young Chinese people who have come of age at a certain time have been trained to watch movies. Yeah, it's and, and it's really interesting. Your idea that just like touching any of this stuff um, the the downsides almost, uh, you know, seem to outweigh um, outweigh the positives if you're a if you're a Hollywood producer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, and especially because there have been so many examples of movies doing phenomenally well and being very popular and well received in China that have nothing to do with China, no Chinese star, no sort of effort, no bending over backwards to appeal. There, they're just um, oftentimes. There are movies that you can't see anywhere else. There's, I mean, America still has a monopoly on the, a certain kind of blockbuster. And so um, focusing on just sort of making those movies, um, av- certainly avoiding anything that will anger China or that will get you denied entry by the censors is important. But um, in terms of trying to introduce 
plot points or stars that will appeal to China, it feels like there are just more landmines than ever. So you talked about these, the fact that, you know, the you want to get through through the censors, right? And that come COVID in your epilogue, you kind of state how there are very few movies getting through those censors today. Do you think this large China market supply simply delayed the inevitable that movies were just going out the door in the U.S. and that this industry was kind of just falling behind? It feels like, I mean, one of the historical parallels that I found fascinating was that whenever the the movies were really just being made initially at all in the in the in the teens and in early 20th century that european film capitals were far ahead of the us when it came to the sophistication and the popularity of films but that when world war 1 broke out um and there was fighting on the european continent it gave america time to catch up and that is really what allowed hollywood to become the premier global film industry among other other things and and COVID kind of functioned in a similar way where we always knew that China was going to become the number one box office in the world eventually. No one expected it to be as soon as 2020. But COVID allowed it to be because theaters in China opened faster than they did in the U.S. And then something really interesting happened, which was that once when Hollywood started releasing films that had been held on the shelf, like a lot of Marvel films and a lot of these big movies that traditionally would have just sailed on the Chinese screens, they were denied acceptance by the by the censors. And there are several theories as to why, Beijing, as you know, Beijing does not send a memo explaining itself. But several theories have emerged, one of which is that now China, now that China has that number one status, it will certainly tr- do everything it can to preserve it. But it might try to preserve it as much as possible without relying on Hollywood and relying on those American grosses. Um, and then the other the other is that there's just always been a spigot of Western influence that the CCP will tighten when it wants to. And last year in particular, whether it was because of the anniversary or whether it was because of Xi Jinping's broader consolidation of power, there was a tightening of that spigot. And Western movies weren't really allowed in. And I think about it oftentimes as just sort of like a risk assessment, right? So if you are working in the Ministry of Propaganda and it's your job to let movies in and you know the way the wind is blowing and that like right now the West is on the outs and and she wants to see, you know, wants to have a year of, you know, CCP patriotism. Are you really going to be the bureaucrat who puts a year? Oh uh, yeah, well, sure, fair enough. Yeah, thank you. Fair, fair correction. But w- are you really going to be the bureaucrat who who sticks his neck out and says, "No, we should let we should let all these Disney movies in"? Um, you can see how it starts to happen on a sort of individual level that these these decisions these decisions get made. Now, I will say that um, so far this year, there have certainly been some high profile movies let into the country. The um, this new Batman film just got a China release date. Um, There are several others um, that have already been announced that are coming out later this year. And it's always going to be um, a calibration that China has to maintain. Because like I said, they know that A, Chinese people want to see a lot of these films, and B, the Chinese theaters need them because they're so popular. And and so there's always going to be a level of control that makes it economically worthwhile but never tips so far 
that it looks like they're giving Western culture an upper hand over Chinese culture. Yeah, I mean, the the political economy and how it's changed over the past 30 years is really interesting, because as you relate in your book, you know, like Wanda was created by this. I mean, you know, having theaters and having temple, uh, temple attractions and malls and having big American movies to get folks into these buildings um, was absolutely critical. And you had this like crazy revenue sharing thing where the where a lot of the money that funded the Chinese studios and Chinese industry in the first place came from box office sales from the West. Um, but now as that as that dynamic has has shifted and the industry doesn't necessarily need um, these big American temple movies to um uh, to to survive. It becomes much easier as a as a government official to say, oh yeah, you know, why don't we let our movies have a little more space to breathe on the calendar? Exactly. And then Hollywood, which has spent twenty years coming up with business plans that rely on the Chinese market, is left holding the bag. Um, that that blew my mind. I mean, the 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 way that the tables turned, as you said, in the 90s, when Hollywood films are let in because they need their grosses to just over 25 years later, suddenly Hollywood films not playing in China because they don't need them anymore. And they, they and politically, they might not want them anymore. It's really just this rapid, this rapid shift. And I really think that there's a lot of anxiety in Hollywood right now because those Chinese releases and those Chinese grosses are more uncertain than ever. If Hollywood producers could go back 25 years, what do you think they would have done differently? Not much at all. I think <laughs> that they really needed the China market when it emerged. I mean, the timing could not have been better. Um, the The reason that, that China became such a financial savior to Hollywood was there were a couple things happening, but one was that ticket sales in the U.S. started to flatline around 2008. So it doesn't exactly take like some genius MBA to figure out where the growth is when China's growing at a clip. And then at the same time, the DVD market collapses. The DVD market, as crazy as it might sound today in like the Netflix era, the DVD market was really keeping the lights on at a lot of studios and helping keep very unsuccessful films profitable. That goes away around 2008. And then at the same time, these studios that were once these mighty entities get swallowed up by larger and larger corporate holes. So like uh, Paramount becomes part of this much is today a part of Viacom CBS. Universal is part of Comcast. They become part of these much larger corporations. And so the expectation grows higher and higher of turning in better and better grosses. And so all of these things are combining to make China the financial savior. And so for a lot of these these executives, again, think about it on an individual level. A lot of these executives who need to meet their numbers and make their quarter needed China at the moment. And I don't think any of them would have done anything differently because of concerns that at some point it would come back to haunt them or, you know, they might even find themselves 20 years later at odds with their own government. Yeah, Eric, that was a really interesting uh, sort of business angle I hadn't considered before is like, you know, it was like the same thing as like when Goldman was a partnership and then all of a sudden it went public and then got all levered up before the uh, financial crisis. Right. The same kind of dynamic was play was at play in these uh, in these studios, which used to be reporting to family offices who, you know, maybe were a little less aggressive in their growth targets and thought winning Oscars was cooler than making billions of dollars 
on the margin, I guess they probably thought making billions of dollars was cool. But, um, you know, once you once you have such uh, an incredible opportunity out there, it becomes much harder for anyone to stand on the on the morals of, oh, no, like we want to support the Dalai Lama. So let's make a movie um, or no. Oh my God, what a twist. Can you, can you bring that, uh, bring that story up to the, uh, to the 2010s? I know it's, it's, it's insane. I mean, one theme that, uh, that emerged in the reporting of this book is it just always felt like no matter what everyone I would talk to or read about or research would at some point get absorbed by China. Like it was just this kind of like slow moving tide that eventually would sweep up everyone. And so the director of Seven Years in Tibet is this perfect example because his his movie comes out. Sony releases the film. Sony gets banned from China. Uh, the director, Jean Jacques, he gets banned from China. Brad Pitt gets banned from China. And it takes over a year of this sort of apology tour for, for Sony to get back in their good graces. Many, many years later, the director, Jean Jacques Anod, is uh, in his office in Europe. And his assistant tells him that he has visitors there from China and they say, we want you to come and direct a Chinese film. And he says, well, that sounds lovely, but unfortunately, I'm banned in your country. And they said, oh, no, 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 it's OK. We, we can talk to the right people. We'll get you there. And they wanted him there to direct a film called Wolf Totem, which was uh, a movie. They needed him because he had worked with animals a lot in the past. One of the, his films was representatively called The Bear. And so they they hired him and they also said that they hired him for a really fascinating reason, which was that the film explored these themes of environmentalism that the, the government wanted its people to absorb. And they thought that if they had hired a once banned director to run the project, that its message would be received with more credibility. It's really a pretty savvy, um, pretty savvy strategy here. Crazy. Crazy. So he goes over, he directs the film. It is released to really, really critical acclaim. I mean, really a well-received film. Um, and yet, to our point about the the uh, the reaction and, and, and the mobs that can form in, in China, he's constantly pestered everywhere he goes for his involvement with Seven Years in Tibet and his tacit support of the Dalai Lama. It comes up time and time again. And eventually he has to issue an apology and apologize for making seven years in Tibet. <laughs> what are we now? 15 years after the fact, he apologizes for the film. And when I talked to him, I asked him about this and he said, well, you know, he started talking about how um, in when he was coming up as a director, he would study films that had been made by Soviet filmmakers in censorious regimes and how those films could be beautifully done. And he started talking about how, you know, no country is perfect. Every country has um, bad history. And I, he said something along the lines of, I can be a friend to everyone. I can be a friend to, to both sides. Um, really just a fascinating arc um, of someone who, as I said, was functioned as a bit of a cautionary tale for all of Hollywood because he was banned by China, only to then years later be hired by China and then apologize for that film 15 years after the fact. Wild. I think this really shows you how spyless some Hollywood producers can be. Or what mortgage payments do to you. Well, I mean, I think, you know, and I think that uh, it's, I mean, Steven Spielberg's another one, I think, who who came up, um, he, he came up early in the reporting of my book because 
he was involved in the 2008 uh, Summer Olympics in Beijing and then was pressured to to drop his involvement um, because of uh, Chinese government policies. About eight years after that, he started uh, he refinanced his uh, Amblin production company with a, a minority stake from Alibaba that now helps him get his movies into China. It was another example of just how everyone who I think it seems like starts out on the, the, the wrong side of China eventually gets absorbed by it. And I and there was a um, I don't know what your thoughts are on Henry Kissinger's book on China. Um, I'd love to hear them sometime, probably off mic to spare our listeners. <laughs> but um, there's this line that he that he writes in it that that ta- that I thought about as I would hear these stories, which was about how throughout Chinese history, there was uh, there was this phenomenon of conquerors coming to China and and then being told that the Chinese system and the Chinese country was so complicated that they had to they the only way that they could really take it over was be to learn from the Chinese how to do so and that eventually they would just be absorbed by the Chinese and their entire motivation of conquest would be turned on its head and i thought of that time and time again as i would see these directors who it seems at one point were critical of china suddenly working for it yeah i don't know if it's some deep history thing i think money talks but Richard Gere, though, seems like he's like the only one who like actively tried, who's actively like willing to sacrifice some some monetary upside. Yeah, I said, yeah, that, as you know what, as I said that, you know, you're right. Richard Gere is certainly an exception to that rule because he um, he around the time of as I referenced as around the time of the Dalai Lama's very popular spin through Hollywood, Richard Gere was his most famous student and and a very good friend of his. Um, constantly photographed with him, would wear prayer beads on the red carpet, um, spoke out at the Oscars against China in in um, and in support of Tibet in the early 90s. So Richard Gere, um, you know, his career hums along. He he makes Chicago, he makes romantic comedies, and then as China's box office starts to grow and it becomes more and more of a priority for these Hollywood studios. Richard Gere turns radioactive and his very public support for the Dalai Lama makes him unhirable. And and this was another question I had when I started out reporting this book, because there were always whispers and Richard Gere himself would say, I am not hireable by major studios because of my criticism of the Chinese regime. And there was always some skepticism that that was really the case. But it turns out it is true. Um, Casting associates told me you don't touch Richard Gere because he's just, first of all, they're probably not going to show any movie that stars him. And again, it all comes back to risk. Why take that risk? If you really need Richard Gere, let's have a conversation. But if you can call Jeremy Irons, let's call Jeremy Irons. Um, <laughs> and in Richard Gere, the last movie he made for a major studio came out in 2008, which no coincidence was the year that China's box office started to really grow in a substantial way. Eric, I want to go through some of your historical analogies because I thought they were really interesting. Um, Hayes Code. So the Hayes Code was uh, was a kind of America's version of censorship. It was um, it was what defined movie making for several decades uh, around the time between the the two world wars and after World War II, and and it was a is a fascinating code where it was developed by a guy named Will Hayes who ran what was what would become the Motion Picture Association. 
And it was a really religiously motivated code that kept a lot of, um, you know, untoward things, let's say, off screen. So women could not be shown uh, in labor. Married couples often slept in two separate beds. Um, you know, really a, a, a pretty, uh, what's the word? I, I mean, talk about like not even a PG, but like almost like a G-rated existence. Um, certainly no taking the Lord's name in vain to say nothing of of other four-letter words. And um, it's a fascinating parallel because it really made movies achieve a kind of aspirational morality in ways that I think the CCP rules sometimes do too, and also a moral equilibrium. Like there, there was oftentimes this this sense under the Hayes Code that, it, you know, bad guys had to have their comeuppance, and and good would prevail. And there's a very similar reaction from the CCP to movies in China, um, where CCP officials in chi reviewing Chinese films will expect there to be consequences for bad actions and for the the state to always maintain order. The difference between the two, though, is that, as I said, the Hayes Code was very religiously motivated. In fact, the Pope even weighed in on what the, the Hayes Code would allow and what it wouldn't allow. China's system of censorship is obviously much more politically motivated, and it's going to be all about sort of the preservation and the power of the party. For any listeners out there who have not enjoyed older American movies, I encourage you to check out some pre-Hayes Code shit. It is wild. You have antiheroes, you have drug use, prostitution, homosexuality, like very explicit sexual innuendo, nudity at times. I mean, it's just a fascinating window into history and it makes these people just seem much more real and mm. contemporary in that, you know, the post-Hayes Code stuff for you know, 40 years, what did did have the edge taken off and was anodyne. And you talk about how um, these these American producers started doing self-censorship because they wouldn't even submit scripts that they knew were going to um, uh, uh, going to touch folks numbers. And then, you know, we, we have to wait until the 1970s before there are um, there's both the sort of like cultural movement. There's directors who don't really care. And then there's the funding out there to make these small-ish movies um, that push the limit and, and eventually break the system. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, 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 and it really goes into hyperdrive around World War II when the movies are recruited to help the war effort. And so movies are made about the, um, you know, the valor of the American soldier and the patriots here at home. And, and so that sends it into hyperdrive. And then you're right, it's not until I think the 1960s when um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? was one movie that was a real uh, watershed movie. Um, and then the creation of the rating system also allows there to be a lot more flexibility. Then, of course, in the 70s, you've got Scorsese and The Godfather. You've got, and then we're, we're off and running. But, uh, but I, I, I don't know if the parallel extends to a prediction that China will ever soften its edges. No, I just like movies. I just like pre-code movies because... They're great. Yeah, it's fascinating. And your point, but you're, and you raised a really good point too, which is that those pre code movies, as you said, it's something like they seem more relatable, they seem more contemporary, right? I think this is, this gets to what is lost in a, a censorious yeah. environment, right? Is, is any of that relatability. Last week, I was watching Du Zedong Dai, Waiting Alone, a, a 2004 movie about, 
you know, this like guy who's just living his life in Beijing with his friends and he dates someone and they date someone else. And but the the amount of kind of life in it and in that era of 90s and early 2000s Chinese movies is really sad to see not in contemporary movies. I mean, I watch an outrageous amount. Uh, I've watched I've watched probably like half of the slate of published movies um, from maybe 2017 to 2021, because this is how I taught myself Chinese. Mm -hmm. And the amount of kind of like, you just see the plot points coming a mile away because the good guy has to win and the bad guy has to lose and everyone has to get their comeuppance and the police have to have to sort of like save the day in the end. And, and, and the kind of very, very rarely do you get these, these just bits of humanity that come from having more um more freedom particularly when you're looking at uh chinese movies that have halfway you know that have like not insignificant um budgets and it's a real uh it's a real shame and a real tragedy that um directors aren't able to make stuff that uh you know that that they could really you know make make the sort of stuff that their forebearers were able to make um you know still in the ccp but in the um uh, in the 80s 90s and, and 2000s you had this great quote um i don't think it was a quote you had this great line eric um when you told the golden horse awards story where there was a director uh golden the whole golden horse awards of course were like are like the taiwanese emmys excuse me are like the taiwanese oscars but they encompass like all chinese language film production and uh, what happened was the director went on stage and said, you know, Taiwan should be independent. And all of the, you know, A1 celebrities in the Chinese audience freaked the fuck out. Uh, they had no idea what to do. And they ended up kind of like huddling and, you know, got on a plane the next day. Um, you have this line, though. Chinese directors believe in film's power, its ability to change lives through persuasion and empathy. But they know that its power is limited by the terms of storytelling imposed by the state. And that, I think, is probably the biggest tragedy of all of this. Well, you know, that I think is one of the biggest tragedies of this, um, you know, of this whole censorship system is like, yeah, um, you know, maybe when there's like a little more room to run, you get that R no thing of like people pushing against um, the uh, pushing against the bounds and and um, uh, pushing against the bounds and being able to create really interesting art. But it's so tight that there's not even room to do that sort of stuff. And so what we're left with is this, is this really, um, you know, really kind of like genericized mass market cotton candy productions, which, which almost all of these movies kind of miss the, the, the real substance and grappling with, um, uh, issues. And when it, and when they do try to grapple with the issues, they, you know, stay so many steps away from like the actual sort of root causes of the social problems that they just sort of like allude to. Cause it's like trying to be relevant that, um, I don't know. It's a real bummer. That was a rant. I found this research when I was working on the book. Um, there's a guy at the university of Houston who looks at Chinese soap operas and he studies what Chinese soap operas are most popular in China. And then he compares that with what Chinese soap operas are exported outside of China. And the ones that are most popular in China are the ones that do have something of an edge. And I'll put edge in yeah. big air quotes, right? Where there might be some themes of adultery or there might be a gay character. There might be some something that seems like it's a little out of bounds. However, 
when it comes time to cut distribution deals and ship Chinese soap operas overseas, the only ones that are sent are what is considered the absolute safest product. And it is going to be, as you said, this is completely sanitized version of, of life in China. You know, the irony, of course, the one show in the past five years, the one soap that in the past five years that actually blew up around the world, the story of Yanxi Palace, mm-hmm. um, was banned in China. You can't find it on IG anymore because uh, it got too hot. It, the the themes were a little too tense. Uh, you know, these women were a little too empowered for the uh, for the state's comfort. Um, so it's it's absolutely not the case that China doesn't have the ta- the talent, the technical ability, uh, the story the story writing chops, the actors and actresses to make content that the world is going to be interested in, but. Every time the the creative class ends up making something that has um, that has that sort of global mass appeal, um, because it is um, because to do that you have to tell human stories which are realistic and 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 you know p- portray complex characters. Uh, you end up having the state stepping in and say, no, we don't really like this. We're not. Um, we're, we're gonna not let you guys make any more palace dramas, which is which is really sad. There's a fascinating contrast with um, Korea right now and yeah. the, the Korean culture that is just being exported so successfully. I mean, I think Korea right now has exactly what China wants with it has a Best Picture Oscar with Parasite. It's got a global phenomenon with Squid Game. It's got an even bigger global phenomenon with K-pop. And yet Squid Game and Parasite would never have been made in China and Chinese China's version of K-pop often, I mean, the reason that they're often in the headlines is because some singer got into trouble and then had to release some CCP anthem as retribution. So I think, I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying, which is the, the need for provocation and complexity for global appeal. Yeah. I mean, Parasite and Squid Game are brutal social critiques. You know, I, it, it, it's funny thinking about like, is China ever going to get its get its Oscar? Right. Like Chloe Zhao, big social critique. Wolf Totem, um, I guess it doesn't really count. But I, given the politics today, I think it's impossible to imagine the Academy voting for a Chinese movie, which doesn't have have a real edge to it. And that's probably not going to be made anytime soon, unfortunately. I think that's a great point. Yeah, no, you can't imagine. I mean, I could imagine a Chinese film winning, but I could, but I had imagined it would have to be something along the lines of those fifth generation films that were not shown in Chinese theaters for that to, yeah, for that to be more palatable. So Eric, at what point is some Chinese studio going to give up, say, fuck it, and produce my, um, you know, Death of Stalin Mao edition sequel? Chinese-based one? No, 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 no. Sorry, no. Uh, uh, Western uh, Hollywood Hollywood studio. Gotcha. I was like, keep dreaming, man. Um, <laughs> Please. Yeah, I. You know what? It's. I have to say, I, I, I don't mean to be a pessimist. I don't think any studio would touch something like that. Um, I think it's possible to see a streamer try to explore those themes a little bit. Um, mm. you know. I, I reference in the book how Netflix is not in China because they've wanted to preserve the market for Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, and they haven't let Netflix in or Disney Plus into mainland China. And so um, that has given 
Netflix a long a little bit of a longer leash. Um, they're not they're not greenlighting the Death of Stalin Mao edition, which I do think is a great idea. Um, they're not they're not greenlighting things like that, but they are making movies like there was that film, um, The Laundromat that Steven Soderbergh did that got into um, some she fi- family finance issues of all things. So they have a little bit of a longer leash, and that probably would be where they'd have to they'd have to go. But um, it's I gotta say it's um it's a real long shot. Another interesting analogy you had, Eric, was uh, Nazi Germany in the '30s. How does that speak to these themes? Well, it's 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 fascinating because because the the playbook that China has deployed here. Um, really does have some striking parallels to what the Nazis did in the 30s. This is before the U.S. entered the war and uh, the Nazis were coming to power. Um, they really made sure that no one in Hollywood critiqued them in the form of a feature film. And they did this a couple ways. Uh, one was requiring edits that being made to films that were critical of, of Germany um, before they would be released in Germany and then released around the world. So very similar to what we were saying earlier, where there was a two-pronged approach. It was not just about making sure Germans saw sanctioned films, but making sure that audiences everywhere saw a narrative that Germany approved of. The other thing that they would do was they, they actually sent a member of the Nazi party to Los Angeles to essentially keep everyone in line. And any time he would hear of a project or a script that was being floated around that was critical of the Nazis or was going to explore the rise of the Nazis, he would make sure that that studio knew that if they made the film, their distribution agreement in Germany would be severed and that the actors involved in that film could count on their future films not being shown in Germany as well. Sounds very familiar to people who have written about China's pressure campaigns against movies and actors that it doesn't approve of, too. I want to close with uh, your Kenya chapter. I went to Kenya for a chapter on uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and how culture is, I think, a really underappreciated aspect of the entire initiative. Um, and so in Kenya, this is, this is obviously there's been quite a bit of coverage around the the railway that, that China has built in Kenya, the the highway that they are building, I think, at the moment. There's just a ton of Chinese investment in Kenya, as there is across the continent. And there's also an initiative um, by a Chinese satellite firm called Star Times called the 10,000 Villages Project, which is distributing 10,000 low-cost satellite dishes to Kenyan villages. So these villages, um, oftentimes uh, with people who couple of years ago, we're giving no thought to China at all, are getting these bright orange satellite dishes that they mount on their roof and that beam in channels from around the world, but also beam in a lot of Chinese entertainment. So it was not uncommon for me to walk into an apartment in the middle of the day and see people watching Chinese soap operas, Chinese kung fu, Chinese um, game shows. It was very clear that a lot of Kenyans were essentially allowing their culture and media diet to be a mix of Chinese and American films and TV shows. Um, I met a young boy, a four-year-old, whose hero was the Monkey King, who plays as the Monkey King. 
Um, I went to a, a small theater in another village where everyone was watch was watching a big screen TV showing a Jet Li film, and then another and then there was another another big screen TV next to it showing CCTV. Um, and and for a lot of these folks, as I said, China was something that they had given very little thought to in in previous years, but here suddenly it seemed to be everywhere. It was the country that was building the um building the train station in their backyard and what was fascinating was when i met with the official the kenyan official who was in charge of importing films he was essentially their their film minister he's an incredibly socially conservative politician and he told me that he loved importing chinese films because they'd already been censored he didn't need to worry about those <laughs> bad western values coming and polluting the minds of his people um, and, and one thing that he was particularly obsessed with was portrayal of homosexuality. Um, I mean, to, just to give you a sense, he's he's a, a politician who thinks that there are like certain Nickelodeon shows that can turn kids gay. I mean, that is how extreme we're talking. And obviously, if something has been made in China, he doesn't need to worry about it as much. And I had this fascinating experience because I interviewed him the day I was there in January 2020. And I interviewed him the day of Trump's first impeachment. And he had CNN on in the uh, office while we were talking. And he looked at me and he looked at the TV and he said, you know, does this really look like the best system? I mean, look at how you treat your leaders with such <laughs> disrespect. Um, and so you can imagine how that combination, that sort of more socially concerned, the, the, so the alignment of socially conservative values and then the appeal for leaders like him of China's more authoritarian model compared with the messiness and the chaos of Western democracy, how suddenly that debate and negotiation gets more and more lopsided. Eric, how powerful is gay bar reporting? Depends on the bar, but I really wouldn't underestimate it. I mean, I really, I mean, I think, um, I certainly got some great stuff in Chinese gay bars. For the book, I should say. Uh, I, I got one more one for you really briefly um this this image of she staying in like a teenager's bedroom surrounded by like 80s 80s paraphernalia uh, can, can you can you cover that one in uh just just very briefly yeah sure so uh xi jinping's first trip to america was in the 1980s as part of this uh kind of agricultural exchange and he stayed in a town called uh, muscatine in iowa and i went there and um he stayed with a host family the Dvorchaks. And slept in the room of their son, who had Gary, who had just left for college. And so it was a room that had essentially been preserved as this 18-year-old American boy's bedroom. And he was a science fiction nerd. And so picture Xi Jinping sleeping on a twin bed surrounded by Star Wars and Star Trek figurines. And that is his first trip to the U.S. I mean, and also think about it, too. It's like we're like 10 years from him being sent to the countryside. 10 or 15, 20 years from him being sent to the countryside in par as part of the revolution. And here he is in a cul-de-sac in a split-entry home surrounded by Star Trek figurines. It just must have blown his mind. Just like your book did for me. Eric, thanks so much for being a part of time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Shit to
才是幽默。女王的心意，耀眼的星星，时尚的基因搭配什么？看我的心情，你可以亲吻我的戒指，但不能碰我红吻。就是你，做个最时尚的新人，打扮漂亮的出门，要坚持。